0: Because we have life through Christ in God, we can now go to him in prayer. And would you join me as we do just that? Lord God, we come before you this morning knowing that you are the God who calls us to depend on you. You are trustworthy and true and attentive to the cries of your people. You never sleep and you never rest. You're always willing to, and ready to hear the heart the cries of our hearts as much as we depend on you with the burdens of our lives you listen intently to them this life gives us many reasons to lean into you we face trial suffering pain and death and we grieve the hard situations that we find ourselves in but you offer greater care and protection than, the, that, than this world can bring we confess father that we are slow to depend on you We do not trust in you as we should, but instead of of crying out to you, we cry out to this world to satisfy us. Forgive us for not calling on you. Forgive us for not leaning or believing in you. Forgive us for not trusting in you and for caring more about this world and the suffering that it brings. Thank you, Lord, for never giving up on us. For no matter what we go through or how little we rely on you, you are faithful to those who are in you, and for that, we are grateful. We also thank you for your faithfulness to other Christians around the world. This morning, we specifically thank you for your care and protection for Marcel and his wife in Burkina Faso. In spite of the coup that has taken place there in that country this week, Marcel is safe and we thank you for that. We pray that his ministry there would flourish in that country and that many would come to know you. And we also, Lord, pray for that country. We pray for all those involved in what is taking place. And whatever unfolds in the days to come, Lord, we pray that your church would grow there in that West African country. Finally, we pray for ourselves. As we come to your word, we pray that it would open our hearts and minds to remember you and your care for us. May we rely on you more and more because of what we hear this morning. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat.
1: And you can open up your Bibles to Revelation. Our text for this morning is going to be Revelation 8, 1 through 5, but we are going to start uh, looking at chapter 6. And I hope you guys came to do a little bit of work this morning, not only to hear a sermon, but also to hear some teaching as well. Because we're going to be plowing through a lot of scripture. Did you guys come to work this morning? Yep. Alright, good. Silence can be deafening sometimes, can it? Any person who has sat waiting for a doctor to speak about the prognosis of a loved one knows this. Anyone who has confessed guilt to someone and is waiting for them to respond knows this. Anyone who has sat on the other side of the phone waiting to receive anxious news knows this. To have experienced these moments is to know that silence can sometimes bring you almost to the end of yourself. Silence can be deafening. This morning in our text in chapter 8, we'll, we'll see a situation in which a momentary silence will bring humanity to the end of ourselves. Heaven and earth will flee away. And we will be left standing before Christ as our great cosmic judge. I wonder what the silence will feel like in that moment. Now, this is an idea with which Revelation calls us to grapple. For Revelation speaks of the reality that one day all the cosmos, all of the universe that we can't even see with our most powerful telescopes, it will all be torn asunder, And we will find ourselves standing at the foot of the throne of the creator and cosmic judge. Now imagine for a moment that all you see and hear rushes away. And you are left standing, probably kneeling, having nothing to offer before the king of all the cosmos. Try and imagine it. What comes to mind? What feelings rush in? The silence is a bit deafening, isn't it? Now this morning, that is the emotion that our text will purpose to elicit from us. For in a moment of cosmic silence and in the judgment that follows, our text will cut away from us any fleshly arrogance that remains as it portrays the judgment of God on an unbelieving world. And at the same time, I think our text will also serve to greatly strengthen and encourage our spirits, our spirits that are in Christ, as we see that for the believer, for those in Christ, judgment is actually a welcome event. For it is in full judgment that God brings both his recompense and his reward. It is then that all will be made right, all will be restored, and all will be made just. It is at the moment of judgment that God will finally answer in fullness the prayers of his people. And that is what we're going to see this morning. God's judgment is his answer to the prayers of his people. God's judgment is his answer to the prayers of his people. Now, it's an answer to prayer because at judgment, both the justice of God's wrath will be poured out upon rebellion but also his mercy will pour forth in redemption and resurrection, and both should be treasured by the heart of the believer. The first part is our focus for today, but the second will become more alive as Revelation progresses. So we have to see both sides of the coin of what judgment is. Don't just think about the negative aspect of it, that's what we'll focus on a bit today, but it's also the flip side that at judgment also comes restoration. Now, let's remind ourselves of where we are in the book since we took a break last week uh, from Revelation. Remember first that we are looking at Revelation through what is called progressive recapitulation. I know it's a mouthful, but it's important for you to understand. Everybody say progressive. Progressive. Recapitulation. Recapitulation. There will be a quiz later. No, not really. You can think of it as a corkscrew that circles back and hits the same events from different angles, all the while moving forward in progress, in intensity, and in clarity. And so things that will hit early on in Revelation, as Revelation progresses, will get more clarity and we'll feel things more intensely. And this is very orthodox, very normal, and very traditional for reading uh, something that is written in apocalyptic literature. Okay, And that's what Revelation is. We began with chapter 1 with a vision of Christ as the ultimate author and focus of the book. And then chapters 2 and 3 were seven letters written to seven churches in Asia Minor, representing the fullness of the church across time and space. And the rest of Revelation plays out the content of these letters in chapters 2 and 3. And at the beginning of all of the playing out of that content is chapters 4 and 5, where we see the sovereignty and providence of God, And the culmination of his plan of salvation through the Lamb that was standing as though slain. That was both crucified and victorious. Chapter 6 then began to lay out the first view, if you will, as we go around the corkscrew, of the judgment of God upon the unbelieving earth dwellers. And within it, we ran into the fifth and sixth seals there in Revelation 6. Take a look at Revelation 6. And let's take a look at two of the seals, starting in verse 9. When he, the lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete And the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand it? Now you can go back and listen to an in-depth teaching on this portion that uh, Nick did that was fantastic. You can go back and listen to that online. Uh, But here what we see in review is the heaven dwellers and the earth dwellers, the two inhabitants of two different worlds, citizens of two different kingdoms. In heaven, we have the souls of the saints who have died for the word of God and for his witness, and they are crying out for God to bring justice and to avenge their deaths. And they're told to wait a little while longer until the fullness of the saints has been completed. But then on earth, we have the sixth seal of apocalyptic terror, And cosmic judgment being pictured where heaven and earth are removed, they're destroyed, and those that still are in rebellion against God's reign are screeching out in terror to be hidden from his wrath. The heaven dwellers, the souls of the saints, are left waiting, asking, what about us? And that's where chapter 7 came in, parenthetically giving us the picture of their protection in being sealed with the divine seal of the Holy Spirit, as well as the picture of their ultimate reward. And this brings us to our text today, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And it will serve as both a closure of the seven seals that we've just seen, those judgments, as well as an introduction to the seven trumpet judgments. It's a transition statement. It finalizes the fullness of God's judgment that will come as the last of the seven seals, And it's also a summary of what will occur in the trumpet judgments. In both cases, it shows that God's judgment will be the answer to the prayers of his people. Let's go ahead and read that text now in chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Still with me? When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. In the very first verse, we are shown an awestruck silence signaling the day of reckoning. An awestruck silence signaling the day of reckoning. With the seventh seal, the lamb that was standing as though slain has unsealed and unrolled the entirety of the scroll that symbolizes God's redemptive and historic plan. And at this final seal, all of heaven goes silent. And if you'll remember, all of creation in the sixth seal had been removed. In other words, the entire cosmos goes silent. Remember that heaven is the throne room of God, and it is populated by angelic heavenly beings who are singing his praises night and day. It never stops. And yet, at this seal's breaking, all of that stops and silence occurs. And the silence is deafening. Now, there are a number of possibilities as to what the silence symbolizes. It could possibly be many things. Some think God silences heaven so that he can lean down to hear the saints' prayers. It could be that. Some suggest that there is silence because God is about to speak to renew heaven and earth. It could be that. It could be a dramatic pause or humanity's stunned silence captured as far as the heavenlies when the fullness of God's historic drama has come to completion. Now, while all these are possibilities, I think Scripture actually tells us and gives us great clarity when it comes to this instance of silence. The fact that it's a half an hour speaks to the fact that it's almost instantaneous. Is it exactly 30 minutes that will occur? We don't know. But I think Scripture tells us what's going on here and what the symbolism is. You see, silence very often in Scripture accompanies the presence of God in judgment and his righteous wrath when it comes to destroy sin and sinners. Let me give you a few clear examples from the minor prophets. You can write these down and go look at them. In context later, Zechariah 2.13, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, before Yahweh, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Amos 8.3, The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere, silence. Habakkuk 2.20, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. These verses establish a precedent. There are many others, but these few even establish a precedent for how to interpret the idea of silence. It is attached to a moment of great judgment and great wrath. But perhaps the clearest reference that helps us understand Revelation 8.1 and what is going on with the final seal is in the Psalms. Would you turn to Psalm 76 with me? Psalm 76, in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 76, we will see as we continue on in Revelation an increasing use of imagery from the Exodus. The Exodus was given in the Old Testament as a picture of the fullness of salvation, the fullness of being removed from exile and slavery to sin. And it will be used more and more in Revelation, and we're starting to see that even today, as I'll show you. But what we will pull from the Exodus is the fact of God's judgment and what occurs in that judgment. In Psalm 76, this psalm is uh, referencing the Exodus and the might of the Lord in protecting the Israelites from the army of Pharaoh. Let's read through it a bit. Verse 1, In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem." his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Selah. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Now, this is the imagery that's talking about when God overtook the armies of Pharaoh and destroyed them. They couldn't even move their hands because they were crushed in the midst of the Red Sea. Look at verse 7. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? Does this sound like the language of Revelation at the sixth seal? Who can stand? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth Selah. there even you see the the dual sides of the coin he arose to establish judgment and yet save all the humble of the earth this psalm is structured to emphasize God's wrath on his enemies and protection of his people picture it with me for a second just picture it in your minds The Red Sea is opened up into a great canyon through which the people of Israel are hurriedly running, sprinting to escape the onslaught over their shoulder of the bloodthirsty armies of Pharaoh, waiting to mow them down. You can imagine the noise, the tumult, the craziness. The wind of God's breath is holding back the waters, the sound of military chariots chasing down the people, the screams of the Israelites calling for their brethren to hurry, and just as they all ascend out of the seabed and onto the shore, the water comes crashing down with the force of a million hurricanes upon the heads of the soldiers, while Israel stands in stunned shock. And suddenly... Silence, a deafening silence. For God's vengeance had come, and the prayers of his people had been answered. Salvation was accomplished. Silence, stillness. The word still here in verse 8 of Psalm 76 is a word that means stunned silence. God came forth in judgment, and the earth was silently stunned. And now in Revelation 8, Jesus, through John, is using the imagery of God's judgment over Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea to speak of this ultimate salvation as the full exodus. You might say, Hans, how do you get that out of this one verse? Well, it fits within the structure of Revelation. Remember, with Revelation, we move through and we see that corkscrew. And so what we see here is built up and clarified later on. And sometimes to understand Revelation in its fullness, you have to stop and pull back for a second at the higher level view to see the structure of what's being communicated. Remember that in this recapitulated view, we're looking at the same event from different angles. And we have submitted to you that the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls are all looking at the same truth from different angles. And in between them, interlocking them, is a similar theme of the Exodus. You can think of it like this, just to make it simple. You have each of the sets of seven judgments, and then in between them are interlocking statements that put them together. Finishing off the one and starting the other. Here we have Revelation 8, 1 through 5, between the seals and the trumpets. In Revelation 15, we will have the transition between the trumpets and the bowls. In the second interlocking text after the trumpets and before the bowls, we can look at the imagery. Would you go there now with me in your Bibles to Revelation 15? Revelation 15, and look at verses 1 through 4. Look at this second section of interlocking verses. At the end of the trumpets, at the beginning of the bowls, we have this statement. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. They're pictured as holding bowls full of plagues. And then he says in verse 2, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. This is a sea that has been calmed, so it's no longer chaotic. It is like glass. But it's mingled with fire, wrath that has just occurred. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass. You have imagery here of the Israelites standing beside the calm red sea where the beast of Pharaoh and his armies has been destroyed. They're standing by the sea of the glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing, notice, the song of Moses. This is exactly what occurred in Exodus. But they've attached to it, and the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. It's a new song, similar to the song of Moses, but different. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is taking the imagery of the calm sea after the destruction of Pharaoh's army, and the imagery of Moses leading Israel in song and laying it over the ultimate exodus, the ultimate victory that will occur at the judgment seat of Christ. There, the church will sing the ultimate victory song at the end of days when God reveals himself from his holy habitation to judge the unrepentant earth dwellers and avenge the repentant saints that have relied upon the blood of the slain lamb. And that will be the ultimate exodus. And so as we zoom back out on that corkscrew of the imagery of Revelation and we come back to where we were in Revelation 8, go ahead and go back there. Revelation 8, we realize that this same truth is being Portrayed. Heaven and earth will be removed, Christ will sit in judgment, and those found in Christ will be avenged. And so awe inspiring will this moment be that all of creation will stand in deafening silence, just as Israel did on that day upon the shores of the Red Sea. For the day of reckoning for all mankind will have come in that moment, and it will come suddenly. Friends, do you believe this biblical proclamation, that judgment will come upon every person on this earth, yourself included? We heard in our earlier reading that Jesus, the one who proved himself truthful by his resurrection, promised that that day will come. Do you believe that one day you will stand humbled before your creator king? Such a reality should humble us. And cause us to consider how we will then live. Will we be part of those resurrected to eternal life in Christ? Or will we be those who stand in unrepentant rebellion? Resurrected to terrorizing judgment. Or will we be those who are caught by surprise? Because we simply dismiss the idea while we lived. We simply dismiss the idea in the way that we lived. This judgment will bring God's righteous wrath upon those who spent their lives in rebellion against him. And if this incites terrorizing fear in you, well, this is God's grace to cause you to turn to him in repentance. And what you will find if you do so is that God's judgment no longer incites fear but it actually gives a comfort that helps us to endure. And this is what we see next in verses two through four. For here we see the power of a praying people worshiping an attentive God. The power of a praying people worshiping an attentive God. Remember that the chapter and verse breaks were added far later than the original writing And they're not inspired, and so sometimes they don't make sense. So right away, in verse 2, we can see that we have entered a new vision. Verse 1 actually belongs to the seals. And beginning in verse 2, we start a new vision because it says, Then I saw, take a look there at Revelation 8.2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Now here it is obvious that we're starting to transition into the seven trumpet judgments and away from the seven seals. Verse 2 starts the trumpets, but then they are not picked up again until verse 6, and so... Verses three through five are acting here in that interlocking transition fashion that I noted just a minute ago. And the visionary symbolism that is used is that of the altar of incense. So let's pause for a moment and unpack that with a bit of biblical background, because we are removed by many years, by tradition, and we need to understand what it's saying here. So let's take our minds all the way back to the tabernacle that was given by God to Israel. Go back again to the book of Exodus. Let's take our minds all the way back to that tabernacle, and as Moses was being instructed to build it, every piece of furniture was put in a specific place. It it couldn't be moved. It had to be put specifically in one spot. If you want to for your reading this week and your study, you can go read through Exodus 40 to see it all in more depth, but this whole tabernacle was to be laid out as a representation of the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly throne room. We know this because the New Testament tells us this is the case. This is from Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and a piece of chapter 5, just for sake of time, it says this, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That's speaking of Jesus. He is our great high priest. And he ministers in the heavens at the right hand of the Father. But the tabernacle that was given in Exodus is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And this design was based upon the tabernacle or throne room in the abode of God, what we refer to as heaven. And that design was very specific. If you were to look at it from the top, it laid out this way. A person who's entering from the east, from the right side, would first come to the altar of sacrifice, where they would offer a sin offering to deal with their sin because they could go no further. And then they would come to the bronze laver in which they would use the water to ritually cleanse themselves. And then if they were a priest, they would enter the actual tent and pass by the table of showbread and the menorah lampstand. But then before entering through the veil into the Holy of Holies and observing the footstool of God between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, they would first come to the altar of incense. Now, recognize for a second what this is. In the Holy of Holies, the ark, you guys have all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? So we're all biblical scholars, right? Yeah? Okay. You got the two cherubim with their wings facing each other. That is called the mercy seat. It is the place where God dwells or dwelt on earth for the Israelites. But what dwelt there was not all of God. It was what was called the Shekinah glory of God. People think of it as almost kind of this glowing presence, But the reality of what that is, is a footstool. You guys know what a footstool is, right? I'm sure you use it when you're watching the Raiders, right? Yeah? You're sitting in your easy chair, and you put the footstool there, and you put your feet on it. You're sitting in the throne, but your feet are on the footstool. God's throne is in heaven. His footstool is in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. In other words, it wasn't the fullness of his throne, but it was a representation, and it was one that should bring humility, that we are at the footstool of God. The closest we can get is his toes, and that's where we were bowing before. This is the footstool, but before even going to that, you had to go to the altar of incense. Now, let's think about it for a second. As we even have this picture before us, let's dig a bit deeper and compare it to the tabernacle in the heavens that John is seeing in his vision. In Revelation, there is no longer an altar of sacrifice. Why? Because the perfect sacrifice of the risen and yet slain Lamb of Jesus Christ is complete once and for all. He has forever paid the debt of those who rely upon his gracious substitution in our place. In Revelation, there's no longer a brazen laver. Why? Because the saints of God are able to wash themselves and cleanse themselves in the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation, there is no longer a table of showbread to symbolize the provision of God for his people. Why? Because in Christ, the bread of life that came down from heaven, Jesus Christ, is our provision. God has forever provided salvation and life to his people through Jesus, the bread of life. In Revelation, there is no longer a veil separating the people of God from the throne of God. Why? Because in Christ's death and resurrection, he tore the veil of separation. It was our rebellion and sin and paved a way for those who are purified by his blood, by his ultimate sacrifice on the cross, to be reconciled to him. In Revelation, you have a totally different tabernacle because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The picture has been done away with and it's been replaced by the ultimate, by the true In Revelation, as with the early tabernacle, you have the high priest still, Jesus himself, who also acts as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And he stands amongst the lampstands, which now is the picture of his church, in whom dwells his Holy Spirit shining outward as a lamp to the nations to draw them to Christ. And most importantly of all, in Revelation, you have the throne of the Almighty God, which will never be moved. And upon it sits this great high priest, this perfect sacrifice, the provision of life from the Father, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, the anointed one himself. John is clearly depicting the earthly tabernacle as the copy of the true heavenly tabernacle of God. But don't stop there. The priests alone entered into the first portion of the tabernacle, and beyond that, only the high priest could move into the Holy of Holies on one day out of the year, the day Yom Kippur The Day of Atonement. And this was the day upon which the priest would enter the earthly holy of holies to sprinkle blood, to sacrifice of the sacrifice, to cleanse the ark, the footstool of God's throne, so that God's presence might dwell with them. For without sacrifice, God does not dwell with his people. But let's stay focused on the part that influences our reading in Revelation today. Before the high priest would move through the veil into the Holy of Holies, he would first pause at the altar of incense and place incense upon the burning coals. And great smoke would waft upwards, creating a wall, a cloudy veil of its own. Now, the priest would regularly place incense here during both the morning and evening sacrifices. But on this occasion, it was provided as a safety, a way to not be overcome with immediate awe and possible death as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and witnessed the tangible presence and consuming holiness of God. Look up on the screen with me at Leviticus 16. This is where it talks about it. It says, He, the priest, shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that it's over the testimony so that he does not die for the priest and for the Jewish people this cloud of incense that rose to God became symbolic of that which was divinely accepted by God it meant that the priest the human representative could enter into the presence of God that sin had truly been dealt with so that they can be reconciled Now, to add to the picture, as the high priest came back out, can you imagine the silence? And then the high priest would emerge from the tent and say, Israel, your sins have been forgiven. And a new song would go up, an eruption of praise. I can't wait for that day. The day where Jesus emerges from his tabernacle and says, church, Your sins have been forgiven. Where he tells us the fullness of what has already been accomplished. The altar of incense was, if you will, the moment of reckoning. Either the high priest would enter into the presence of God or he would be judged for his sin and struck dead. And you can see this imagery of a cry for acceptance even used by the psalmist in Psalm 141. Our earlier reading, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice, a prayer asking for acceptance. It is this background imagery that John is relying upon here in Revelation. Let's read again from Revelation 8, 3 through 4. Again, it says, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints and the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Here the incense is mixed with the prayers of the saints. All of this imagery I've just laid out for you comes together. And we can ask, which prayers are those? Well, it tells us. It tells us these are prayers of all the saints. Go back just a little bit in Revelation with me to Revelation 5.8. Look at Revelation 5.8, what it says there. When the Lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. What are they? The prayers of the saints. Take a look at Revelation 6, 9 through 10 again that we read earlier. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls... This is the altar of incense, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's their prayer. These are the prayers of God's people, not just martyrs as we would call them, but anyone who has died in Christ and suffered for his name. You see, true believers in Christ don't walk through this world comfortable They don't walk through the world going, boy, this is all well and good. Isn't it great that the nations rule and that humans are in rebellion? true Christians are heartbroken at every turn because this world is in such rebellion against its creator. Even in our best times, friends. Oh, I remember the 80s. Those were good days. The 90s, oh boy, yeah. Even in our best days, True believers are heartbroken because of the rebellion that exists within us and around us. And so we cry out, God, how long? How long until you bring justice? How long until you bring justice upon this flesh and discard it so that I can be resurrected to new life to worship you? How long until you destroy this chaos and the rebellion that surrounds us? These are the prayers of God's people. And that's why it uses the phrase in chapter 8, all the saints. All the saints across all time and space are under the altar, crying out to God, begging for vindication and for God to avenge their suffering. And God's response is that he tells them to hold off, to rest a while, until the fullness of his people has been brought in. But that does not mean that he is dismissive of their cries. He says that when the fullness of the saints have died, he will prove himself faithful to hear that cry and avenge the suffering and martyrdom. He pours out all of the prayers in this moment of judgment as incense upon the white-hot heat of his wrath, and the two mingle together to become an acceptable sacrifice, so much so that it initiates judgment. Judgment unto condemnation and judgment unto mercy. You see, dear friends, while we see God often as deaf or dismissive of our prayers of lament, dismissing our cries for justice, there will come a day when every prayer that has been uttered through tears is poured back out in full acceptance and used in power. Gives you goosebumps, doesn't it? Yeah. For first century Christians under heavy persecution, this was a welcome imagery. For 21st century Christians, it should be as well. It should point us to the necessity and power of worship through the prayer of the saints to an attentive and loving God. And we know this because we finish with the vision of how God answers those prayers. For God will answer the prayers of his saints with divine judgment. God will answer the prayers of his saints with divine judgment. Verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. John mentions an incense censer here. Now, as Protestants, we are not as familiar with these, but they're still an active part of Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic liturgies. They're meant to waft the smell of the smoke of incense, and so a censer is swung back and forth as the smoke rises. There's coals with incense on top of it. But the incense is already rising here because of the prayers of the saints in worship. And so instead, this angel takes only the burning coals and places them in the censer. It's imagery of God's burning holiness and his just nature. But notice there's no incense. There is nothing which pictures divine acceptance. Quite the opposite. The angel swings it towards the earth and throws it and peals of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning are the result. To look for this as speaking to any particular event in the future is to miss the point of what it is saying. The imagery thus far has been meant to bring our minds back to the Exodus as we have seen. And again, here it uses imagery from the portion of the Exodus story, where the Israelites who have been freed by God and protected from Pharaoh's army by God now reach the mount upon which God is going to meet them and enter into covenant with them. Recall Exodus 19, and the same wording, the same idea is there. They have moved through the Red Sea. They've come to the mountain to meet with God, and it says on the morning... Of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. (laughs) You can see a lot of the same imagery coming together here. So that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly." Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning. These are earth-moving and cosmic events. These images will be used a few more times in Revelation to signal that one event has ended and another is beginning. One set of looking at the judgment has ended and another is beginning. It is meant to remind us that as on Sinai, God was present. He was powerful. And he was interacting with mankind to bring about his cosmic and redemptive purposes. The same is true here in Revelation. Here on the Mount of Sinai in Revelation 8, Mount Sinai of his heavenly throne room, he is acting in the same powerful and present way, but this time to bring judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. And empowering this powerful judgment is the prayers of the saints. Prayers calling for judgment and an answer to their lifelong lament. Let's pause for a moment and notice two very important things that here will help frame our idea of what fruitful prayer looks like before we look at how God answers these prayers. First, notice that the one true God that we worship is a God who hears. Your God hears you. Think again of the Exodus from which we've already pulled so much. What was it that finally moved God's hand to bring redemption? The prayers of lament regarding affliction coming up from the people of God. Here's Exodus 2.24. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Friends, we've had people tell us as elders, oh, I... Man, I could never do what you do up on stage with those pastoral prayers. Friends, the reason that we write them out is because we want to take time and do things well for God, and we want to lead you and show you an example in pastoral and missional prayer. Does that mean that's the only way to pray? Absolutely not. Were these well-worded, wordsmithed prayers that they wrote up and practiced? No, they were, what's the word there? Groans. God, help. They were groans. Does that discount a well-worded prayer? Absolutely not. Both are good and fruitful. Exodus 3.7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry, How many times have you dismissed your prayers because all you can muster is tears? I don't know that God hears anything because I can't even speak while he absolutely hears something. He's heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and he knows their sufferings. The one true and living God that is portrayed in Exodus is the same God shown in Revelation that will one day take all of the cries that he has gathered from his people He'll take all the groans he's heard, and the scales will be tipped to just such an extent that he says, I have been patient long enough. Now is the time to bring judgment and justice upon the earth in fullness. And this will not be some form of false justice that is enacted in man-made laws and institutions that never actually changed the heart of man. This is godly, biblical justice that will show mercy to the elect because of the grace of God and at the same time separate and punish those who have gloried in their own rebellion against him. Friends, you may not think that God hears your prayers of pain and your hurt and lament. You may feel that maybe he doesn't acknowledge your prayers of broken conviction for your own sin or sadness for the rebellion against him and the persecution of his people that we see every day but God treasures those prayers and he's storing them up for the appropriate time in which he will act in response to them and bring justice to the earth. He does that manifestly now in small bits and pieces, but he will do it in fullness one day. He is the God who hears and his response is not missing. It is simply waiting for the perfect timing and the fullness of his providence to act. Our job is to wait and to rest. Rest in the knowledge that he is good and he is sovereign. But then also notice with me that the prayers are far different than we might think of when we think of prayer in 2022 America. Most people probably think of the type of prayer known as petition when they hear the word prayer. Asking God for things. And please hear me, this is a great form of prayer, and God calls us to ask him for provision and then to thank him for provision. But unfortunately, I think many of us ask amiss out of greed or immaturity, and often without any regard of God's will. We just want our own will accomplished. But interestingly enough, the imagery of incense even helps us here. Notice with me Exodus 30, and this might be a reach, but boy, it's beautiful, so we're going to talk about it. The Lord said to Moses, "'Take sweet spices.'" A word I can't pronounce, stacty, I think. Another word I can't pronounce. All these words I can't pronounce. Sweet spices with pure frankincense. For each there shall be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. Notice that the incense that was made, the incense that was used on the altar of incense, it was used symbolically in Revelation to speak to the prayers of the saints. It's not for us, it's for the Lord. I know in my own life, I often only pray with an outlook of what I might get out of it. And so when I don't think God's going to act, I just don't pray because he's not going to do what I want. But friends, prayer is a form of worship because it causes our hearts to be aligned to God's will. That's why we do it. And yes, he wants us to pray for what we desire, but not my will be done, but his will be done. May his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, not my kingdom come, not my plan for how things should go, but we must pray that God's eternal plan of redemption plays out. And when it doesn't make sense, we follow in the footsteps of those who've gone before us, and we lament like we see here. The prayers of the saints here in Revelation are the cries of vulnerable saints subjected to the suffering and persecution that comes by being exiles in a world that operates under ideologies and laws that are against them and the God they serve. The prayers are laments to God to make things right because no matter what we see or experience on this earth, we recognize that it is only a glimpse of the glories to be known when we are finally and fully one in reconciliation with our God. And as we witness this great liturgy of worship in the throne room of heaven, as we look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, we should be convicted and ask the question, do I even recognize the importance of the prayers of the saints? And do I pray in the way pictured here? And when we pray, whose kingdom is lifted up and whose will is desired and who is actually enthroned? What kind of prayer do you pray? Do you praise God for who he is, not just what he has given you? Do you adore God for his wondrous nature? Do you confess your sin and ask for forgiveness and empowerment to repent? Do you thank God for all that he has done for you that you see and don't see, even if that is only life and breath and salvation? Do you intercede on behalf of those saints around the world that know a kind of suffering and persecution that we will most likely never understand in the U.S.? Do you lament the state of the world and implore the Lord to act on the behalf of the vulnerable? Friends, are are your prayers mixed with the ones we see here in Revelation, mingled with the prayers of the saints across all time and space, those prayers that are lifted to God in glorious worship for him, not necessarily for us? This text we have before us shows that part of how we endure is to recognize that God's judgment poured out is his answer to the prayers of his people. Friends, how often do you pray for judgment to come? The prayers of a people made righteous by the blood of Jesus are powerful and move the redemptive plan of God forward. And maybe the judgment we see here in Revelation is not the distinct thing we've been praying for. But the heart that treasures the will of God will see his judgment and the redemption that will follow as the fulfillment of any and all prayers we have ever lifted up to him. If you think that you don't know how to pray, dear friend, simply pour out your heart to God. If you don't know what to pray, well, we've already seen that the Lord hears our cries and our groans of lament. If you want to grow in your prayer life, there's a prayer night that happens here at the church. You can go talk to my friend Paul over here. I think one's coming up this next week, right, Paul? Yeah. yeah. We want to partner with you and help you grow in prayer. I want to encourage you to pray for the endurance of the saints. If you're a member here, you should be able to pray through our member directory online or in hard copy. Broke my heart the other day when I asked my wife. I said, how many, how many people have uh, gotten... Uh, directories the last time around. Oh, 10. Now, I know a few of you look online, but we have 130 members. 130 should be praying for the perseverance of the saints, at least the saints in this church. Do you pray for your brothers and sisters that they might endure suffering, that they might be encouraged in Christ? This is core to what it is to be responsible for one another and to exhort one another. Do you pray that we would give our lives as a fragrant offering to Christ in service of one another? Friends, these questions are not meant to shame you. They're meant for all of us to grow so that we can practice this kind of prayer that we see here in this worship session in heaven. Do you pray for the other member churches of the Northwest Church Network of whom we're a part? Do you pray for the churches in Salem? Do you pray for Pastor Marcel and the brothers who minister in Burkina Faso? Friends, just the thing I've listed, you'll be in prayer for days. Do you pray like those saints in Revelation 6 for God's justice against hypocrisy and persecution and injustice? Do you pray, as the word calls us to, for our leaders, even if you disagree with them? Do you pray for his wrath and judgment, recognizing judgment to the sinner is a grace to draw them to repentance? Do you pray for that in the lives of your family members who don't know Jesus, Lord, bring judgment? not because I hate them, but because I love them? Do you pray for those still left to be placed under the altar to hear the call of Jesus? Do you pray for the advancement of the gospel? Do you pray for covenant communities and churches and tribes being affected by the ongoing daily martyrdom of the saints? Let me give you two websites that can help you in your prayer. The first one, ICommitToPray.com, is from Voice of the Martyrs. It gives you things to pray about for those being martyred and put to death every single day for the sake of Christ. JoshuaProject.net slash pray is, uh, is a program that seeks to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel and talks about those unreached people groups. These are wonderful websites to go to to help you pray when you don't know what to pray for. You see, friends, the image that John selected to close the seven seals and to open the seven trumpets shows us that God's judgment is his answer to the prayers of his people. We can trust that God hears our prayers and that his plan of redemption will answer them when judgment for rebellion and mercy out of grace come in that final judgment day, that day when heaven and earth are silenced and all of creation stands in awe at what God has accomplished through the salvation of his son. And what we do each Sunday when we gather is we look forward to that day. We look back to the cross and we look forward to that day as we participate in communion and as we worship God for what he has done.